out of space. It just keeps happening. Not that we're special, but God loves his own. And I thought of something else. When we close our eyes and we all pray, you know instantly who's praying, don't you? By the voice. Instantly. But if somebody prays and you don't recognize the voice, you think, oh, that's somebody I haven't met. But that's the same. The Father knows every one of his children. His sheep are known to him. It's a precious thing. God knows you by name. He knows you just the way you are. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you that you know all things. But, Lord, your relationship with your people, with us, is so intimate. Father, you know our going out and our coming in, our rising up and our sleeping. We thank you there's nothing that's hid before your eyes. And you graciously lead us, Lord, into truth. Lord, to those who seek, you say we will find. And if we knock on that door, you will open it to us. We ask that this evening, Lord, that you will be with us and uh, bring light into our lives, Lord, and clarity and a sharp, cutting-edge sword that our witness will be really sharp and we will know how to answer in a time of question. Dear Lord, in these difficult days, we want to stand as a clear witness for Jesus. Help us, Lord, for his namesake. Amen. 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 I um, really thought this is a subject uh, that's worth looking at. I did have something else on my mind that the Lord sort of brought me around to this, so I spent a bit of time and, um, well, I'm going to unpack it. I'd like to do it in four parts, if I may. Um, it's a bit lengthy, but I will try and get through it as quickly as I can. You, you can't cut around difficult subjects, can you? You've got to give it the full whack. <laughs> the four parts. I'd like to start with an introduction, uh, which really helps to create the foundation for what I'd like to share. And it's going to help because it'll inform us about you know, where things are exactly uh, in, in, in in this particular time that we are in. And then I'd like to look at three parts about the people, the place, and the purpose. And it'll all become very apparent because I've um, got it on there. So it's exposing the new anti-Semitism in the church. We know about anti-Semitism, and you also know there's anti-Semitism in the church. Tony touched on that. But are you aware how deep it goes? I get to speak at many churches too, and uh, I can assure you, it's not necessary an inbuilt hatred, but it's there. It's there, and they can't quite explain it, but you know, they take it as granted that this is the situation, this is what the Lord is saying. And you know, when you bring the scriptural view, they find that very difficult, and I'll explain to you why that is. So let me just start with some quotes. That's what the ex-chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, uh, has said. He said, anti-Semitism is a virus that survives by mutating. In the Middle Ages, Jews were hated because of their religion. In the 19th and 20th centuries, they were hated because of their race. Today, they are hated because of their nation-state Israel. Anti-Zionism is the new anti-Semitism. Here's another one by a man called William Nichols. He says, the very presence of the Jewish people in the world puts a great question against Christian belief in a new covenant 
made through Christ. How about that one? The very presence of Jews. That's a very old one, which is um, quoted by David Turner in his book, writing on anti-Semitism. He says, if Augustine provided the theological rationale for preserving some Jews, he also maintained that Christianity superseded Judaism, inherited Jewish scripture, history, and most importantly, the covenant with God. This was Augustine's theory of substitution. That's an interesting one, isn't it? It's a theory of substitution. Whereby the new Israel of the church became a substitute of ancient Israel. You see, when we come to expose this subject or to discuss it or to look into it, the new anti-Semitism in the church requires an understanding of one of the mysteries that Paul talks about. Paul refers to this in Romans 11. And uh, let's just read that. It says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Romans eleven twenty-five to 26. See the mystery of the partial hardening of Israel for a time and their ultimate salvation, though explained by Paul and predicted by the prophets, remains, I would say, a cloudy mystery. It's a cloudy mystery for most of the established church. They're either ignorant of God's purposes for Israel as a nation in our time and also for the future, or just they just misread, misunderstand, or misinterpret the plain meaning of Scripture. And that's interesting, isn't it, when it speaks about being wise in your own opinion. They're wise in their own opinion, and so they've arrived at that conclusion. God's covenants with Israel are key, I believe, for the correct understanding of this controversial subject in passages like Romans 11. And at the heart of the controversy over Israel is the question of God's purpose for Israel. That's really at the heart of it. What purpose do they hold? You know, we're not against Israel. You know, we love Jewish people. What purpose do they hold? Where is it all going? It's the purpose, the question of God's purpose for Israel, which underpins their election. And in Romans 9, 11, Paul states that God's purpose in election must stand. He says it clearly. God's purpose in election must stand. And election is not by works or merit, is it? Or the part of the elect. But it rests solely and wholly on the one who calls on his own sovereign purpose in Christ. That You're going to hear that phrase, in Christ, quite a lot. Because that is crucial. It's in Christ. There are lots of scriptures. I won't read them all. I've got quite a few to read. But if you're making notes, you're taking notes. It's Ephesians 1.9, Ephesians 3.11. And together with 1 Corinthians 10.18. You can read it for yourself. These scriptures really are used to defend the belief that God has no further purpose for Israel. Since his purpose is now fulfilled in 
Christ. And, and they contend that Israel has served its divine destiny by producing the Messiah. They, they, they did well. God used them. They produced the Messiah. All those wonderful stories we hear, all that, that happened at Christ, Christmas, you know, you go to Bethlehem, fantastic. They produce the Messiah, who, as they see, is the Israel of God, quite rightly. Fulfilled God's purpose, both for Israel and for the whole world. And those three scriptures, like I say, really is, is their sort of... There are many others, but they're, they're foundational for them. Therefore, they assume that Jesus and his followers are now, that's you and me, by the way, saints, that we're now the true Israel of God, according to their theology, being the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And that's in Genesis 22:18, And that through his promised seed, who incidentally is Christ, Christ is his promised seed. Galatians 3.16 tells us that. All the nations will be blessed. We're still talking about their position, okay? All the nations will be blessed. And the rejection of this promised seed by the very people that God promised it to through the unconditional covenant brought God's judgment upon his elect people. Many would say the curse upon them. That's how they said it in the Middle Ages. You've been cursed. And they gathered up Jews. If you remember the famous York Tower, they herded them into that tower and they burnt them alive because they'd been cursed. And they didn't think they were doing wrong because these are to be cursed, these people. They're to be judged. And judgment is falling on them. And that, of course, results in Israel what? Being cast off, being laid aside, put out. What's Israel's blindness? It's actually partial and temporary. The Bible tells us that. Paul contends that God's sovereign will for Israel has not failed for two reasons. Firstly, because it was never dependent on Israel's faithfulness. Actually, it's the same with our salvation. It wasn't because you were faithful. We were sinful people. But it was his love that drew us to him. Isn't that right? It depended upon God. I didn't seek to be saved. I was playing harmlessly in a park one day and somebody invited me. <laughs> and I went to the church that there was in a, in a smoky hall and God did his work. And so it depends on the one who saves. It's God's faithfulness to Israel. But on, it's also on God's declared purpose. His love, his power and his faithfulness. And secondly, it's really because of the remnant that's chosen by grace. That's within Israel. There's always going to be a remnant, saints. I wonder if you're part of that remnant. The church is very big, isn't it? But not all who say they're Christians are Christians. We know that for a fact. Let me just read Romans 11, 5 uh, for you, just to clarify that, if I may. This is what it says. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... We have now received the reconciliation. It is God who does that work. God foreknew Israel as he foreknew you. And their response to his son when he chose them. And he was not forced to change his mind concerning them. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that, didn't he? Think about it. If you knew something, if you knew someone was going to make a decision based on what you say, 
you may choose not to give them the thing or say what you're going to say or do for them what you're going to do because you know what they're going to do. Not God. Even in our rejection, even in Israel's rejection, he still loved them. He didn't change his mind concerning them. I rejecting them and replacing them with another group, another body, another a band of people when they rejected his Messiah. He still extended his love, his faithfulness, his sovereign will, and his power towards his people. And over his elect choice. It, it, see, it's not a question of either or, because that's the way they see it. Those who reject Israel see it as an either or situation. But it's actually a both and an and. It's both and. And we'll, we'll unpack that as we go on. He did not choose Israel as a means to an end, as they, as they say. They've done their bits and now they're cast off. Because why? We now have taken on the mantle of that uh, rightful position. No, he didn't use them as a means to an end. To use them as an instrument to produce the Messiah in order to bless the nations and then discard them once the job was done. He hasn't discarded them because the job hasn't quite finished yet. <laughs> There's more to come and he needs Israel. God faithfully fulfilled his will for Israel because they are a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant chosen by grace. A remnant chosen by grace from within the nation, those who will be saved, those who will come to faith, whom Paul refers to as the true Israel of God. The true Israel of God. Don't get confused. Somebody said to me, does that mean that all the Jews that we see, they're all going to get saved? I said, you can only have salvation through the Jewish Mashiach. And what's his name? Jesus. There's no salvation any other way. There's not a separate covenant for salvation. There's only one way of salvation. Let's make that absolutely clear. It's only through Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection and belief in him. We know that because many Jews... If it was all Jews in the upper room. There was not a Gentile in sight, was there? And they said, how are these Gentiles going to come in? Because they got saved. <laughs> it was all a Jewish thing, if I may use that word. Us Gentiles, we kind of came in at the back. We got grafted in. It's God's wonder. We don't feel second class because the love is the same. God doesn't differentiate his love. He just has a way of doing things. And that's what the church can't seem to understand in all of this. It's the remnant chosen by grace. And Paul explains, not all of Israel are Israel. He says that. But only the children of promise. It is only those faithful to God's promises, fulfilling Christ, that are reckoned as the true Israel of God. Now, there has always been a faithful remnant, as I've said, in Israel, for instance, if you take Elijah and the 7,000 who didn't bow their knee. There are many others. Think of Anna and Simeon and others. There's loads of those. But they're all numbered amongst that remnant. That's in 1 Kings 19, uh, 18, by the way. And given the fact that on the day of Pentecost, God created his new temple. No longer was he going to dwell in a temple made with hands. He did something amazing. He created a new temple. Of flesh and blood. Of people. 
That's where his heart is. God is an intimate God. He doesn't want to dwell in a building. But many people say, well, I'm going to church. I think we know what they mean by that. But it is true. I'm going to church. In other words, you know, where are you now? You're part of the church. <laughs> God created his new temple, the body of Messiah, through spirit baptism in the Ruach HaKodesh. They knew that because the Holy Spirit, the Ruach of God, descended upon them for the first time in that new way. Not the first time. He had, the Spirit came to many in, in the Old Testament. We know that for a fact. But in this way, to indwell, it was something quite unique, quite different. Absolutely amazing. He did not fall, sorry, he did not fail in fulfilling his covenant with Israel and writing his law in their hearts by the same Ruach, the same Spirit. I've got lots of scriptures here in case you want to find out where they are. I'm happy to give them to you. This is not the source of any serious disagreement, I, I don't think, with those who have that view, by the way. Since the advocates of uh, replacement theology, let's call them that for the moment. They hate that term, by the way, because I have spoken about it and they give you lots of different. I'll come to that in a minute. But they don't like that word. But the advocates of replacement theology, they agree that in Christ the spiritual blessings of the new covenant made available to both Jew and Gentile, but also to those who joined them by being grafted, Gentiles that is, into their faith community, as stated in Romans 15, 17. Remember, we're partakers with Israel. We're not overtakers, and certainly not undertakers. Hitler was. <laughs> we are partakers with them. We don't overtake them or undertake, kill them, and get rid of them. This, however, is not the complete fulfillment of God's new covenant with Israel, which is only partly fulfilled due to Israel's rejection of their Messiah. You see, had they accepted him, what would have happened? Had they all accepted him, what would have happened? Well, they would have enjoyed all the promises made to them. Why would God hold it back? He came first to the house of Israel. He came to his own. But his own rejected him. How sad. They rejected him. But they would have enjoyed all the promises made to them, which involve not only spiritual, but also physical blessing of the kingdom restored on David's throne. That's what they were longing for. They said that to him, Lord, will you now restore your kingdom? They recognized who he was, and are you going to do it now, they said, didn't they? And in their time, and in their own land, they wanted that to happen. See, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Have you ever seen the Lord weep over anywhere else? Where else did he weep? When someone? Yes. Because of death. What a terrible thing. He's the prince of life, hallelujah. But it must have been a terrible thing. He who was God. He didn't intend anyone to die. But also Jerusalem. Look at the way they were treating him. He knew they were going to reject him. And crucify him outside the city walls. He wept over Jerusalem. When they rejected him. And in Isaiah 48, 18 it says this. Oh that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. The waves of the sea are mighty, aren't they? 
You can't contend with them. And that's what he was saying. Peace, like a real being calm. You had peace. And right, that's the thing that Israel is seeking now. They have no peace, have they? Because they rejected their Messiah. There is no peace for the wicked. And wickedness rejects God. Anyone who's wicked casts away God in their heart. God's unconditional covenant with Abraham involves the three things. The promised land, the promised people, and the promised purpose. We'll speak on that shortly. And not exhaustively fulfilled in redemption or the salvation of sinful man. That's not the only purpose. See the evangelical church. They all see as redemption being the final plan. This is the conversation I've, Kathy and I have had with several people. We say, well, what after? What next? Because their main task is to see people saved. Of course it is. That is a primary task. We're not here to be theologians and to preach sermons to people. It's to reach out to people with the Messiah, Jew and Gentile. But that is actually not just the primary or one of the things. It is actually the, the, the coming glory of God to be revealed in his kingdom at the restoration of the whole world. Acts 3.21 makes it absolutely clear that God wants, you know, having been saved, he wants for us to understand what is this kingdom to come? Why do we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next word? Thy kingdom come. Jesus, because he, he knew that, they missed the boat there. Pray for that, he said. So this, the great, I'll call it the great controversy in this year, it's, it is a thorny issue. The future position and destiny of Israel is clearly a thorny issue. And uh, you're not going to get any agreement on this unless you sit with people and if they're willing to have a debate with you and look at scripture and compare notes because they've really come to an intransigent, biased position that it makes it really hard for people to see any different. This has generated much strife, division, and even wrong attitudes towards the Jewish people. In the church I'm talking about, remember? This is about exposing anti, the new anti-Semitism in the church. We know anti-Semitism exists outside. We don't need to be reminded of that. I'm sure you're reminded every time you look at the, the biased broadcasting corporation called the BBC, by the way. <laughs> you're going to get plenty of that. It's attitudes to Jewish people that's affected by all of this. And in fact, replacement theology is deeply rooted in most churches. It's deeply rooted. And many people don't even know why they think that. But it is actually, if you say to them, do you hate Jewish people? Oh, no, I don't hate Jewish people. Of course not. How could you say such a thing? But it underpins their thinking and their worship and the way they see things scripturally. It really does. And it will affect your worldview and your prophetic view if you haven't got this piece of the jigsaw in the right place. And especially within the reform persuasion. You see, in the past, it used to be, you know, from the Roman Catholic Church or, you know, the extremes. But then it's come into the mainline evangelical stream now. And all of the reform uh, churches, they all hold this view because that's what's been taught. And it creates a fertile soil for anti-Semitism. Here's another quote. This is the Archbishop of Canterbury. I thought it was actually quite good. Um, I don't agree with a lot of what he says or does, but um, we need to pray that God will move. And this is what he says. And this, by the way, is quoted in the Jewish Chronicle. He wrote 
um, an article, and this is what they've said. Oh, he spoke, didn't he? Yes, he spoke there. It is a shameful truth that through its theological teachings, the church, which should have offered an antidote, compounded the spread of this virus. The fact that anti-Semitism has infected the body of the church is something of which we as Christians must be deeply repentant. We live with the consequences of our history of denial and complicity. It's a good quote, I think. I like two things in there when he refers to it as a virus. It's not COVID that's going to kill you. That's a worse virus than COVID because it puts you out with God. If you hate Israel, there is no blessing for you. That's what the Bible says. And then he used that word repentant. I, I, that's a good word to use, isn't it? it? It says that we, you know, should be repentant of the way we help. That's a, that's a good quote. You see, the Holocaust didn't rise out of nowhere. It didn't just appear. It, there, were, there were centuries of foundational teaching, certainly in Germany, where the Lutheran church was, and it was embedded in a lot of those German officers and the, 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 the hierarchy there. You know, it didn't just spring out of somewhere as a wonderful thought to do. <laughs> Let's clear out all the Jews. No. Europe was ripe for producing a devastating event like the Shoah, the Holocaust. Wrong ideas, biased theology, they all feed into the education system at the time. That's what the children are being taught. It feeds into the culture and the politics, often resulting in physical acts of violence. I just uh, was, was reading today that Hamas are recruiting uh, European thugs to go and beat Jewish people in Europe. So it's not just in Gaza, you see. Can you see how this thing permeates? It's an evil. It's a satanic thing that grows and it mutates all over. That's what Jonathan Sachs said, didn't he? It does mutate. It, it, it's a hatred that you cannot explain. Replacement theology has many words. We spoke to one theologian and he doesn't like the word replacement because it sounds a bit not very politically correct, is it? You know, replace. But that's really what they do. But they actually call it supersessionism, fulfillment theology, and covenant theology. And actually, fulfillment theology is the one that they mostly like to use. But they, they all come to the same conclusion, okay? There are some differences in these three schools of thought. There are some, but they all arrive at the same place, and that is to replace Israel. That is really at the heart of it. Or see Israel as a nation no longer having any future purpose in God's plans. And, and when Nehemiah, for instance, came up against Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem, you know that story. He rightly retorted by saying, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Aren't they the three things that have been attacked by the Arab world or Hamas or the, the Palestinians? They say that the Jews have no heritage, they have no right, and there's no memorial. Somebody, I, I saw a YouTube uh, documentary. They went to Palestinians with a microphone and said, can you 
name me one famous Palestinian in the last 75 years. They all looked at each other and started smiling because they couldn't really... They said, oh, Yasser Arafat, one of the biggest thieves on earth. He took all the money from Europe and built hotels in France, in, in Paris, and robbed everything. But Yasser Arafat is the only one they could quote. Nobody else. So where is their heritage? And then they said, do you not agree that over the last 3,000 years we've dug up all these Jewish cemeteries and Jewish uh, artifacts and Jewish antiquity? They said, yeah, but it's, it's not all Jewish. And they said, what do you mean by that? And they actually believe it is, you know, Arabic going back. They just will not accept it. They will not accept what history shows. And this is what you're dealing with. They turn the truth into a lie. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound familiar? It really is. See, the re-emerging replacement theology with this anti-Semitic bias affects all aspects of God's covenant with Abraham. So I'm just going to show you a diagram now which um, kind of helps to put it into perspective. I'm just going to unpack those three areas just uh, to, uh, to, to close. If you look here, the Abrahamic covenant is really the basis for all other covenants. If you look at it, it's the basis. And if you look at that bar, it says here, you may not be this, it says unconditional, three unconditional, for the people of promise, the place to possess, and the purpose to prosper. It's all in PC. It's quite helpful, that. <laughs> the people of promise. Well, it's God's precious possession of a royal priesthood to fulfill his will. See, out of the people of promise, remember, it's all part of the seed that was going to come out of Abraham. What happened? You've got Jesus, who is the physical seed. He is definitely seed. You've got the church that's born out of that too. We are also part of that seed, birthed out of Abraham. There's two other seeds, by the way. There's Keturah and... Um, I can't think who the other one is. Oh, and Hagar, that's right. Because Abraham had children through them as well, didn't he? So, legitimately there, but they don't figure in the, uh, the promise, as it were. Yeah, I mean, Ishmael obviously had, does have a promise, but for the sake of simplicity, you've got this. So this is really what I'd like to talk about. Then you've got the place... To possess. See, I've got all the scriptures there which, which show you that. The promise of a permanent portion to dwell in for Israel, as promised by God to his people. It's not Israel fighting to survive in a land, by the way. Can I just say that again? It's not Israel fighting for their land. It's what God gave them. It's God's promise to his people. We need to understand that. This is what... God the Almighty ordained for these people. They haven't just gone in and taken it. Or just turned up and occupied it. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Occupy. <laughs> they haven't. It's, it's there in holy writ. And that's what we need to be looking at. And then, of course, I called the last bit, the purpose to prosper. Revealing God's glory and his promised kingdom on earth following Israel's repentance, of course. You've got a twofold thing here. And it's in the person of Christ. It's through Jesus Christ all this happens. You have the new covenant where the church is. Um, and you've got the Davidic covenant for the Jewish people. Let me just unpack those three areas 
very quickly. So you've got a people of promise. Let's look at that. And this is their statement. Israel are no longer the chosen people of God, but have been replaced by the church. That is their you know, poster, if you like. Israel are no longer the chosen people of God, but have been replaced by the church. And their basis for this argument is presented in four New Testament texts, which we're going to look at. It's really important for us to know this, because when they come and speak to you, they will quote this, and you will say, well, oh, I didn't see that, or you, oh, I didn't quite understand it. So it's really un- important for us to understand what they're saying and how we can contest against it. So the first one is in Galatians 6, 16. It says, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. They see themselves as the Israel of God. Yeah, quite naturally. Why, 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 why shouldn't it be? They read into the Greek word ke, because it says ke there. Or kai, if you're studying modern Greek and you, the modern pronunciation, but it's actually ke. It means and. It doesn't mean even. But they put even in there. They, they actually translate that as even. In other words, even us. It's not. It's and. So it's not either or. Remember what I was telling you before? It's not either or. It's both and. It's both and. And it, it, as it is in the meaning of the text, Israel and the church. The so Jewish believers are clearly identified as a separate entity within. They are a separate entity. They are a separate entity. If they are believers, they, you know, are part of the church. They have, there's no difference. But they are a separate entity within the body of Messiah. Paul wanted to encourage the, the brave and courageous Jewish converts who stood against the Judaizers, that's why this was given, who wanted to turn them back to circumcision and, and other Jewish customs. And Paul was saying, you don't need to do that. You're saved. You've come to faith. You know, and, and that's really why Paul says, you know, as, and as many as walk according to this rule, that's the new rule in Messiah, peace and mercy upon them. And upon the Israel of God. He was writing to them. The Israel of God. He didn't say all you Gentiles are now the Israel of God. He didn't say that. And the next scripture is this one. John 8, 44. It says, you are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from, that, from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. They quote that. It's that first bit. Can you see? You of your father, the devil. He said, well, the Lord said that to the Jews. Did he? Look what Jews he said it to. He actually said it to the leaders. He didn't say it to the nation. To the le- he said, you... Oh, you're like your father, the devil. In others, you were misleading all the people and so forth. But the Lord was clearly addressing the religious leaders and not the people. Although those who followed the leaders, of course, would be judged in the same way, wouldn't they? If they follow those leaders. The blind leading the blind. And then what about this one? In Romans 2, 28 to 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. 
nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Can you see where they're going with that? And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. There you have it. You know, you don't need to be a Jew according to the law. We're Jews because we are circumcised in our heart and in our spirit. So we constitute this new Israel. Can you see? Here, what was Paul doing? He was addressing the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders again, who were seeking the praise of men and not of God. In other words, you're not a Jew outwardly, but inwardly, whose praise, and Paul uses an interesting play on words, and I've highlighted praise. Because what does praise mean? It begins with a J. Judah, yes, which is another way of recognizing Jews. Praise, he says, that Jews, and, and, and strangely, the Jews did not live up to their name, neither did Israel in the northern kingdom. You remember the story, you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom with Judah. And many in the north actually left, those who were righteous, those who wanted to find the truth. They left and came down south to join those who believed. They fled to Jerusalem to worship at the temple that God commanded them to do. There was still a remnant. What am I saying in all this? There's always a true remnant of God's people in Israel. And also, I believe, in our generation. There's always been. Here's another one. Matthew 21, 43. What does it say? Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation. It'll be taken from you and given to a nation. Bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. But see, that's the key thing there. It's going to be taken from you and given to a nation. What's wrong with that? Well, the Greek word for nation is ethnos. Ethnos. Not laos. Laos means people. It says he will give it to an ethnos, a nation. Not a people. When was a church a, a nation? When is a church a nation? We're a people, but when is a church a nation? Actually, there is one in 1 Peter, um, but Paul was not, um, but Peter wasn't talking about uh, nationhood as we understand. If you look at that scripture, it'll take too long to explain it here. But truly, the church is not a nation. We are a people of God. We are a people of God. The owner of the vineyard will give the vineyard to someone else, to another nation, an ethnos. It doesn't say another people, as if you've got the NIV, which is the nearly infallible version. If you've got the AV, that's the always version. The church is not a nation but a people. Romans 10, 19 makes that clear. And when Peter says you're a holy nation, he quotes the Old Testament scripture, doesn't he? Familiar to the Jewish believers he's addressing. It is true that, I believe in this current age, the church is fulfilling the role that Israel should play in evangelism and kingdom readiness mission. 
Israel should have done that. Had they believed, had they turned, they would be the evangelists. Not us. They'd be evangelizing us. But they didn't. But is God's plan lost? Never is, is it? God has an amazing way of turning things around. Look at the story of Ruth and Naomi. He used a Gentile woman to birth the seed. But Naomi, uh, Ruth needed Naomi to come back and fulfill that. Because it was Naomi's uh, uh, Goel who set things in motion with uh, Boaz. It's a wonderful story. And Naomi was at the wedding of Ruth. But she was not the bride. It's another, that's another sermon, by the way. <laughs> Let's go to the next one then, shall we? Oh, let me just say this. Um, the Old Testament scripture, um, you know, he was quoting that was familiar to them. None of this precludes the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus' promise to future Israel that would repent. It doesn't preclude that. Let's move to the next one. A place to possess. We're talking about the land of Israel and Jerusalem, the city of God. We're not talking about Haifa or Beersheba or other places. It's actually Jerusalem. They're the ones that are highlighted in God's timetable. And in Romans 4.13, it says, for the, let's have the scripture for that one. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Through the righteousness of faith. The seed here refers to the promised seed, which is Jesus Christ. And, and all those in Christ, those who are in Christ, who will inherit with him. For he is the heir of all things, as the firstborn of all creation. You know these scriptures anyway, but it's so important to be able to state them and undergird these uh, wonderful scriptures. And again, this is a case of either or, or either or, whichever way you want to say. It's not a case of either or, but both and. The fact that those in Christ inherit with Christ. Get that? In Christ, you inherit with Christ. And he does not nullify God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or the generations of Jews to follow uh, for the land of Israel. In fact, the promise for the land is a necessary requirement. Can you see why the fight is going on, saints, for the land? It's more than just a Jewish homeland. It's more than their right to defend their land. There's something far greater. It's a, a prerequisite. It is a precondition, you know, for, for all the subsequent co covenants to take effect. And there can be no restoration for the kingdom of David without Jerusalem returning to Israel's sovereign control nor fulfillment of the new covenant without the regathering of Jews to the land and the restoration of the land to its rightful owners you find that in Ezekiel 36 24 to 23 so let's look at that final the, the, the purpose to prosper the third one remember we looked at the people we looked at the place, and now let's look at the purpose. This is a really important one, and we close with this. See, God's purpose is not just redemptive. I did say that, didn't I? It's not just redemptive, although hallelujah, 
We're all here because of that. Many times we speak to folk, you know, we say, well, so what happens after you get saved? Oh, well, you just go to church. And uh, you go to the Tuesday prayer meeting. And you go to the Wednesday fellowship meeting. And you go to the Friday uh, missionary meeting. And they have all these meetings. And you end up saying, hallelujah, I'm set free at last. Because of all these meetings. Is that true? <laughs> no. There's a bigger plan here. There's a bigger purpose that God wants. Salvation is only the first part of the footprint. Where are you going after this? Do you know what God's call on your life is? What your mission is? What you need to do? It's so important to know this. God's purpose is not just redemptive in salvation, but it's it's also the manifestation of his glory at the restoration of the kingdom of his son in Jerusalem. See, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Let's look at this scripture here, which says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch haba b'ashem Adonai. Until, that word is so, so important. That word, till, you can just miss that. It's, it's incumbent upon them to call upon their Mashiach. And Hosea 5.15 says this, I will return again to my place, that's going to go to glory, where he is, till, there you are that word again? It's not a coincidence, is it? Till they acknowledge their offence. That's Israel. Then they will seek my face in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Are they going through that now, do you think? I think they are, aren't they? A lot. And I've heard that worse is yet to come for them. There's a lot that's hanging in the balance at the moment in Israel, in the Middle East, Gaza, Palestine, whatever that is. But that is, it's that till. That's the bit that Israel needs to bear in mind. They need to call upon their Mashiach. Here's another one in Acts 3.21. Whom heaven must receive up there. What, what are you looking at? Until. It's the same word virtually, isn't it? In all of them. Until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Israel really is God's prophetic time clock for the world. It really is. If you take Israel out of it, you, you, all prophecy is meaningless. There's no key to open prophecy. It, it, it's nonsensical. But that. And it's about a people, a place, and a purpose. And they are the time clock for the world. And the last pages of history have the nation of Israel center stage unfolding according to the feasts of the Lord. Which are the three feasts still remaining to be fulfilled? Anyone remember? Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacle. Well, don't Chantel, you've got full marks here. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Three that are yet to be fulfilled. Am I right in saying that, Tony? Absolutely. Oh, I've got the pastor's approval here. <laughs> we will not have any error in the pulpit, I can tell you that. <laughs> Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles yet to come. Hallelujah. What an expectation for Israel. It is 
God's prophetic time clock. And Romans 11.16 says this. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And that is the grain, the, the seed that's crushing. You've got the flour and you can make the bread. That's the lump referred to here. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So if that tree is a holy, the branches will be holy. So there are two illustrations used here to show how the Jewish remnant, the, the cho- who are chosen by grace, are the guarantee that the rest will be saved. For his calling and his gifts, the Bible says, are without repentance. When God makes a promise to you, he doesn't take it away, does he? He's a wonderful God. He he loves you with an everlasting love and he's called you, brought you under his wing. He's not going to kick you out. He wants to prosper you and bless you. That's what he wants to do. His gifts and calling are without repentance. And they're still his beloved people because of the election and the promise to the patriarchs. What is it motivated by? Love. Love motivates all of that. Jesus' final words to Jerusalem and his disciples were a reaffirmation of the Old Testament promises for the kingdom when the king of the Jews sits on his throne. He was born king of the Jews. Do you remember that? That you recognize, we seek him, where is he who is born king of the Jews? He also died as king of the Jews. He was, that was the sole purpose. He was born and died as the king of the Jews. It didn't say the king of the world, did it? Or the king of the nations. It didn't say that, did it? It says the king of the Jews. And we've kicked them out. And we've replaced them. We've completely missed the boat on this. And I hope it's brought some light to you. Why? Because Jesus was the one who would bring light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And Simeon carried on to say, and the glory of your people, Israel. Luke 2.32. Have you noticed it didn't say, and the glory for the people of Israel? He said, the glory for your people. It was personal. It was his people. Final slide. The Jews will never cease to be a nation before God till his elective purpose for Israel is fulfilled. God had a purpose to bless both Jew and Gentile in Christ. There's that word again. It's in Christ. That's where the blessing is. Jesus died, shed his blood so that we could be in Christ. And the glorified Christ, with his glorified body, the church, will return to take up his earthly throne in Jerusalem according to his promise to his disciples. Could we all say that together? Am Yisrael Chai. God bless you.